Welcome to the MFP Live podcast. I'm producer Courtney Moncure. In this episode of MFP Live, editor Donna Ladd and publisher Kimberly Griffin speak with award-winning author Kiese Lehman, who NPR called a star in the American literary firmament with a voice that is courageous, honest, loving, and singularly beautiful. He's the author of Long Division, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and Heavy, which won the 2019 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction. Layman grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and after teaching at Vassar, is now a professor at the University of Mississippi. Here's Donna. Say hello to my co-founder at the Mississippi Free Press, Kimberly Griffin. Hey, Kimberly. And hey, hey. this is... And our special guest tonight is Kiese Lehman, who, hey, uh, hey. so thrilled to have you here tonight. Kiese is, well, most of you know him, but in the event that you don't, he is an author from Jackson, Mississippi, who is right now, I guess, do you call it in the middle of a book tour right now for... I guess so. I guess so. (laughs) Virtual book tour. (laughs) From my chair. (laughs) That's right. So welcome to MFP Live. We're tickled to have you here. I'm so happy to be here with y'all. Thank y'all for the work y'all do for Mississippi and uh, Jackson. So I, um, you and I grew up around the same time in exactly the same neighborhoods. You are, I think, four or five years. I'm 49. You're about four or five years younger than I am. Right. I was really struck by, we have kind of parallel existences because my family, educators, Black educators, didn't really trust schools with a bunch of white teachers. (laughs) Like, Like I can remember my father was a school principal going to Chetstein when I was in middle school, he and my mother walking down the hall and they look at it at one another and they were like, you see what I'm saying? And I was right. like, what are we seeing? <laughs> right, right. And he was like, what are we seeing? Right. And then, so he went and found his friend who was the the assistant principal and was like, what? There's one black teacher. We saw one, bl- how is that? Wow. And they almost pulled me out, but she convinced them to let me stay. And so they just had this genuine this suspicion that you weren't going to be treated right. Right. And they didn't, my father always says, um, we had a teacher who sent our kids to St. Andrews. It was one of his teachers. And I remember thinking, I thought that was, I said to this him a little while ago, I said, that was so weird. And he said, well, you all got a superior education anyway. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> I was, believe it. He's like, I don't, and she said, that's why I never liked her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's almost 90 now. It's hilarious. Wow. But your mother had a very different perspective. It wasn't a wrong perspective. It was just a different perspective about what she wanted for you. Where do you think that came from? And just so readers know, you went to private schools mostly, right? I went to I went to Reigns Public School. We lived in apartments. We moved to the Queens. We moved in Queens. You know, Reigns is right down from the crunk the Queens. Right. And right. so we went I went to Queens and I mean I mean I went to Reigns. And in third grade, this teacher, this white teacher, you know, went off on me for sitting during the um, Pledge of the Allegiance. <laughs> and uh, my mama came to school and she regulated. And she had a friend who it was sending her kid to Holy Family at the time, mm-hmm. which was an all-Black Catholic school. Yeah, right. Uh, like completely Black Catholic school, except for the teachers. And my uh, mother yeah. my mother really wanted to get me out of range. And she heard, you know, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, Holy Family was like, it was very small, 
Um, I had a bunch was, of friends that went to Holy Family. Yeah, yeah, it was really cheap, you know, compared yeah. to St. Richard's or even St. Right. Mary's. So I went there and then Holy Family shut down. And when Holy Family shut down, they, they allowed those of us who were at Holy Family to go to St. Richard's for the same tuition. So I went to St. Richard's. And then after I went to St. Richard's, we went to, I went to school up in um, Maryland. And when I came back, I went to St. Joe. Not the St. Joe that people know now, but the St. Joe, Joe. <laughs> Joe that was predominantly black. And right. over it, over there, off of a Bowling Street. So I went to Catholic schools my entire, most almost my entire life in right. in Mississippi, in Jackson. But they were predominantly black Catholic schools, right. with the okay. exception of eighth grade when I went to St. Richard's. I think you know what I think that St. Richard's story stuck out to me. So just was so important in that book, yeah. that part of the book for me. You know what I'm saying? Like it was so important. Like I was yeah. like, wow, that is. You may want to tell a little a, well, a little bit of that story. Absolutely. And, you know, that St. Richard's story, like the reason I tell that story in that book was because that year was an oddity for us. You know what I mean? It was, a, it was the only year of my high school life that I wasn't in a majority black school, with the exception of when I went up to play basketball uh, in Maryland for my 10th grade year. But, you know, when I was at St. Richard's, it was majority. When I was at St. Joe's, majority black. When I was at Holy Family, it was all black. But St. Richard's was the first year that, you know, I went to a school in Jackson which was majority um, white. And, you know, we tried to do the same things we did in class, which were like, you know, jokes and, 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 and you know, playing the dozens and whatnot. And the teacher and some of the students just weren't feeling that. So like my critique, you know, I got kicked out of school, I think the first day of school, because my friend was trying to cut an apple with a, with a, with a dull butter knife. And the teacher acted like he pulled out a machete and he was trying to <laughs> chop the necks off everybody. And I was just like, what are you doing? Like, he just cut in a fucking grapefruit. I'm sorry if I can't cuss. But anyway, he's just, he just cut, in, <laughs> just, just cut in a grapefruit. So I got kicked out of school. And of course, I got a whooping that day because my mom was like, you have to know better, right? Like, you have to be twice as good as them to get half as much. And I was like, I'm already twice as good as them. Like, what are you talking about? Like, why am I getting kicked out of school? So... Yeah, most of my time in Mississippi and Jackson was, right, not, okay. was not my St. Richard's experience, but I okay. write about it because it was so different than my other right. experience in Mississippi. Yeah, that okay. So thank you for clarifying that. That was that was because <laughs> yeah, because that St. Richard story, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Tell us about how you got from Mississippi to play ball, and then mm -hmm. you came back. To, Tell us a little bit about that. You came back to St. Joe. Yeah. So, wow. I never get to talk about this, but my mother got a postdoc up in uh, College Park, Maryland. And at the time, there was a school called DeMatha, which is one of the highest ranked basketball schools in the country, coached by Morgan Wooten. I'd gone to um, St. Joe and played basketball as a ninth grader on the varsity team. And then I went up to DeMatha, a Catholic school up in Hyattsville, Maryland, and played basketball up there. Well, my mother was doing her postdoc at the University of Maryland right down the street. And when I came back to St. Joe to play ball, they actually said that we were violating like a Supreme Court ruling. So we had to make a filing to the Supreme Court because what they said was that St. Joe recruited me to play basketball. So if you look in the filings mm -hmm. of the Supreme Court, <laughs> like my name is there. And we actually had to forfeit all of these wins because they said that we cheated when we didn't cheat at all like when i went to st joe initially i lived in north jackson when i came back to st joe my mama had moved to the reservoir and so they were just like why is this kid going to st joe and it was just it's just a, so such a silly thing but the interesting thing is if you look in the supreme court records it'll be like layman versus 
Mississippi High School because they were trying to say like we <laughs> cheated, <laughs> which is like I was not Othella Harrington or Ronnie Henderson. You know what I'm saying? Like I was just a, I like the ball, but I wasn't like one of those ballers. Um, oh my gosh, we well, basketball was life. Days. Yeah. Oh, there it yeah. is, right there. Yeah. Oh, wow. How'd y'all? That's crazy. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's it. Oh, I guess my ex got my mama's name right up in there too. Yep. yep. You never know what he's gonna put on the screen. So that's, 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 that's crazy. <laughs> He'll be yeah. surprising you. So was that like a version of the jumping the line? Like they was it, it wasn't a version of nothing. It was like we beat some school. And they wanted to be like we were cheating and we weren't, you know, because it St. Joe was one of these weird schools where it competed against the public schools, but it was a it was a Catholic school. But you know, but but then again, it wasn't a Catholic school that like the private academies would ever play. You see what okay. I'm saying? It was in this yeah. weird position. Like it yeah, competed yeah, yeah. against Callaway and competed against all these other schools, but but we never did is play prep or JA or any of the academies and whatnot. So, so somehow they tried to make it seem like they were recruiting me, which is, which was, could be as far from true as possible. I wanted to go to St. Joe. Like that was the trajectory I was on my entire career. But anyway, it was just, the interesting thing about this, like how much I love basketball. So when people often talk to me about high school, I talk about writing, but when I was in high school, the, the thing that was most interesting to me was, was sports, you know, like that was, that was it. Yeah, I was just reading your um, essay book, and I was thinking that I was looking at. I think I was looking at the Ole Miss, you know, essay. But I, it was really striking me your talk of sports, as, right. as, as you often do, right? I mean, yeah. we're from the from Mississippi. We're from the South. We love sports. You know, people surprised to hear how much I love sports. You know, when I was in the North, and I wasn't always talking about it. And then I get on the phone with my stepdad, and we would just go off on sports. You know, and people couldn't. You know, they just didn't believe that yeah. it, it was, it was, and I'm sure you get that sometimes too. That's like a great spies. point, Donna. You know what? Like when I moved, when I got my job, wow. Yeah. You're making me talk about stuff I never get to talk about. <laughs> like, so when I got my job teaching at Vassar, I got my job when I was like 26. And for the first three years at Vassar, I was the assistant basketball coach. Mm -hmm. And like, that was my identity, like more than a writer. And as much mm -hmm. as a professor, like people on campus knew me as like that professor, who coaches basketball and but even up north it was the first time i realized like oh people think people who are not just like participants in sports but who love sports people assume a kind of like intellectual like inferiority and i was just like that's not where we come from you know what i mean mm -hmm. where we come from mm -hmm. the expectation is that you're going to be agile you're going to be thoughtful intellectually and you're going to love sports in some form or fashion and that doesn't mean that you're anything less than that is definitely not the vibe I got when I started teaching up at Vassar College. It was completely different. And this was a D3 school. Again, like these weren't like, like, you know, blue chip division one athletes, but mm -hmm. still often they were treated as if they were intellectually like less, less hmm. than. Hmm. It's interesting because you talk about, you said some names, um, Harrington, and maybe it's not interesting as much as it is clarity. They, accused you of jumping a line into a private school wasn't jumping a line you can't jump a line into a private school you just right. at a private right. school right like you pay to go there but that was where what time were we in mississippi we were funneling half our athletes to georgetown we yep. were a basketball state yep we were we were so I mean, everything was super they were and you know there's the suspicion of black men yep so how did he get here right what is he doing here <laughs> like suspicion about the suspicion about the grapefruit yep that's that's, that's <laughs> it that's it. And, 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 you know, like, that's the thing about, about that time period. Like I want to do this documentary about 
basketball in Jackson because it's so mm. interesting. Because like if you look at the if you just look at Georgetown, you got Othello, you got Jerry Nichols, you got Sam Funches, all from sort of the same area who go to Georgetown. And then if you brought it from Georgetown, you got Monte, you got Ronnie, you know, you have all of these, you, you, you've got Jozan, you've got Lindsay, all kind of from like, if not the same neighborhood, maybe four or five miles separating. Mm-hmm. And, and these at dudes, the like, most, at the most. Right. And they all right. become like, like athletic phenoms at the, at the major, at the most major level possible. And I think that has so much to do with Jackson. But I don't know how yet to tease that out. What do you think about that? Well, I have a there. I have many thoughts. Okay. I think first we have to talk about Murr and some shadiness. And my brother went to Murr. He's gonna come for me. <laughs> um, they were Uh-oh. jumping some lines. Oh, yeah, come on now. Uh, we know that. We know that. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> but whatever was that's one place where that was happening. So that's the place that's closest to me, and that's the place. And I went to Callaway, and we were good. We were very good. It right. was us and Murr in the championship. Yep. But you can't really, I mean, in the statewide championship. But you then can't. he got down to us and Gulfport. With Chris. With, right. And we were, but we were a good team. Yeah. They had 12 stars. Yes. Yes. And so I think that there's something about whatever that coach was doing. He was creating people that could operate without one another. Mm. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So... He wanted to send them into the world. If they never played together, we were not creating people who could operate without each other. Right. That's a great We point. were creating a good team. Right. Now, all those people, now what's interesting is all those people are very successful people. Yeah. Who went to school, got a college degree and played basketball, but one's right. like a pilot and one's like, you know, like. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, like the SWAC athletic director was on one of those teams. Like oh, the I didn't know athletic, that. Yeah. He was on one of those Callaway teams because that was a team. Right. And so they were creating a relationship, but they were creating stars at Murr. I don't know what they were doing on the coast. Yeah. But but what but whatever that is, I think that they were coaching people to go out into the world. And whether that was as a team or as a star, there was a coaching that was different. Right. I, I definitely agree with that. A hundred percent. And you're so right. The Callaway teams were like like, yeah, you, you talk about Callaway. And then you talk about Othella, Ronnie, Jesse. You say Callaway, the ninety, the the nineteen ninety team. Yeah, you don't yeah. ever remember those guys. I mean, they were my friends. You talk about ninety one. You remember Callaway ninety one? You don't right. ever talk about who was on the team. That's right. Mm. That's right. Because you know when you say that, I'm thinking. I mean, that's my era, right? And I remember, I remember looking. Uh, we looked up to that team. I remember we played Callaway in a Capital Classic, and we almost beat them. And that was like in 1990. That was in 1991 when they were good. But I still can't remember who was on that team. They were so good. But who was on that team? Well, Charles McClellan was on that team. That's right. Uh, that's right. And he's the swag. You know, my friend George Irvin was on that team. He George is. Irvin. He was an Air Force. He's an Air Force pilot. He went that's to the amazing. Air Force Academy. That's amazing. Like. I can tell you, like they turned out what that coach was coaching for something else. Yes, yes. And but that's how we lost players. No doubt. Is because we lost James Robinson. He was in my neighborhood. Woo! But he went, but he went to Murrah. <laughs> and we knew everybody knew James was not supposed to be at Murrah. You know, and, <laughs> I, and and James was, and that's the thing about basketball at that time. It's just like 
we talk about those dudes as superheroes because we never seen them do. I never seen anybody do what James Robinson could do. He come no. down chewing bubble gum. You know, that dude would be like cross half court, blow a bubble and pull up for like a 35 foot three and turn around before the shit goes in and blow another bubble. Like that right, literally wow. happened. Wow, that literally right. happened, you know? So like right. they, they became superstars. But yeah, I'm, I think you're onto something about the way Coach Jordan created individuals who could go right. on and do something mm-hmm. as opposed to a team. I feel that. So, but you should do that documentary and um, you should get funding for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, somebody, in there. <laughs> somebody approached me about doing it. Somebody approached me about doing because- it. It would be about the neighborhood, though. It would be it, mm-hmm. it would be focusing on the neighborhood in a larger kind. And I do think you're right about the coast. I think Chris created, Chris let us know you could be excellent in basketball nationwide. Mm-hmm. Chris Jackson, um, mm-hmm. former Chris Jackson, uh, nor, currently Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. And then I think I think Steve Galloway and I think other people took it from there, and definitely James. But yeah, like we had to see that like someone from Mississippi could be the greatest. And I remember when I went to uh, Dematha, Dematha was like ranked number like seven in the nation. And I went there and I was just like, damn, like they can't play. Like, you know, they, they couldn't play like we could play. They just, and they were, they were higher ranked. And then I came back for winter to watch uh, St. Joe play as somebody. St. Joe was really good that year. And then I saw Othello. And I remember, and then Othello was like, somebody was like, yo, you know, Othello's like the number two ranked sophomore in the nation. And I was like, you mean the city? And they were like, no, the nation. And I was like, we were just playing fucking in the backyard. Like, <laughs> how did he become the best dude in the nation? And they were, and I met my friend thought He was like, yeah, bro, shit done changed. And I was just like, that, that was literally when I was wow. like, okay, I cannot think about basketball as my future anymore. Like, I need to, <laughs> I need to start writing and reading or something because I can. I'm not six nine. I'm not fast like that. You know. So. Well, well I want to ask you. I don't know if it's as much fun, but how did you end up at Millsaps? Basketball. It was. It was. was uh, it? Okay. Coach Stroud. Coach Stroud was a coach there. He came. I mean, actually, I'm being dishonest. Basketball and. I didn't want to leave my girlfriend. That's <laughs> my a, girlfriend. You, I think you wrote about that. My girlfriend was a year younger than I was, so she was going to be coming up. I didn't want to leave Jackson, but also I really wanted to play basketball. I wasn't good enough to go to play at Jackson State at D1, and Millsaps had a really good D3 team, and I was just going to go there and play. But, like, my first semester, before we can even start practicing, I like – I like to eat too much, man. Like, I ate myself out of a shooting guard position, and then I was like <laughs> – before I knew it, I was like, okay, well, I'm too fat to play the way I want to play. And then I started falling into the reading and writing. But when I left mm-hmm. when I left Millsaps and went to Oberlin, um, I played basketball for all my whole right. time, my whole time there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's been a little while since I've read the memoir, but all of it kind of comes back when yeah. you're talking about it. Well, talk, I you know, I want you to to veer a little bit and I want to talk about higher ed and Mississippi's okay. tone okay. with you. <laughs> okay. and you can see where this is going. But but the thing that strikes me about Bill Saps and like even your, you know, the things you've written about and uh, you know, your interactions with Tate Reeves, for instance. Mm. You know, Millsaps is this really interesting institution, I think, in our kind of cultural memory, you know, because we have it working with in civil rights work and working with Tougaloo and, you know, a lot of the really interesting things that, and, you know, for then, I guess, daring things that it did, but then you have written a lot about 
some of the things that you experienced there. I just want you to talk a little bit more about that. You know, I'm not sure what the question is, but, you know, just being this institution kind of yeah. uh, two things kind of going on at once in the right. state of Mississippi, especially. Yeah. You know, the thing I'll say about Millsaps is I learned when I look back at my time at Millsaps that like, like bars, bars actually work. You know what I mean? Like, so when I was, when I was growing up in Jackson, you know, we would drive by Millsaps often, but I never, I saw all those bars and I saw that mm-hmm. the bars that were on West Street, I think it was West Street. Mm-hmm. I think that the bars like the like that those bars are always closed. The bars over on the shit facing Bellhaven, that's right. They they were open. And so, like, you know, like I didn't know anybody at Bellhaven like much of my time as a young person in in, in, in Jackson, but I knew people on the other side. And so mm-hmm. I, I just never thought there was anything in there for us in real mm-hmm. time. It wasn't until Coach Strauss started trying to recruit me and my friend Terry that I even looked at Millsaps as somewhere that I could potentially go. And then you look and you see the history again, the history of Tougaloo, the history with uh, just this, uh, like being supposedly on the forefront of a kind of Jackson civil rights for a long time. And, you know, Mrs. It, it, it called itself the quote unquote best school in Mississippi. Like that's what it, that's what it called mm-hmm. itself. Remember they were always saying them Harvard or the South, like, like, and, anyway, and now you find out every school calls itself the Harvard, <laughs> Harvard of, of, the of the Midwest. Yeah, of the, blah, blah. Right. But anyway, so so I didn't know anything about Millsaps and I wasn't prepared, not intellectually, I was definitely prepared intellectually. I wasn't prepared social, politically, for what it would mean to go to a neo-Confederate school filled mm-hmm. with not just wealthy white people, but wealthy and poor white people who were passing as wealthy white people when you were one of the few black folks there. And of all the black men there, we were all there to play a sport. There were there were probably one or two black men I knew who weren't recruited to play a sport. That says a lot about like that place. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. But also we'll say it was college. And so it was the first time I was free, first time I was allowed to like like explore on my own terms. So you know, I learned a lot at Millsaps, but, mm-hmm. you know, Millsaps did not know how to deal with the black student who was trying to experiment with art. And that's at the end of the day, like, that's a generous reading of what those people did. You know what I'm saying? They kicked me mm-hmm. out of school for taking a library book out of the library and taking it back. Like, that's what I got yeah. kicked out of college for. And they got, and I was told I could come back after a year if I went to a shrink of their choosing because they said that I had like psychological issues and I couldn't get along with white people. And, you know, I, I just think as, a, as an educator now, <laughs> you don't kick a kid out for fucking taking a library book. I don't care what mm-hmm. they did previously. Like, mm-hmm. you do not do that. You know, and it's just so ironic growing up in Jackson, being always taught that, like, black boys need to read more. and Black boys mm-hmm. need to find themselves in the book more. The motherfucker, they kicked me out for taking a book out of the library. Red badge of courage. You know what I'm saying? Like. And I didn't go to steal the book. I went to check the book out for my for my girlfriend at the time, but I, I left my ID. So I dropped the book, kicked it under the scanner, looked at the video, uh, looked at the thing. And then the next day I get the call. I need to come talk to the dean because they got me on tape for theft. And I was just like, what the fuck did I steal? You know, right. and then I was like, oh, a library book. Oh, I was like, oh, but I brought that back. But, you know, by that point, they wanted me to get up out of there and they were going to use anything. Well, that, start, that seems to symbolize a lot. You know, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's uh, you know, sometimes I think about what would have happened if the internet were around because in the absence of the internet, like you know, there were news crews that were called, and, and you know, they got they got some footage of like those fraternity members in blackface, and Afro wigs, and capes. But I also think 
it'd be really interesting because you know there were some pretty pretty well-known Jackson politicians and business mm -hmm. people who were also members of the Kappa Alpha fraternity and the Kappa Sig fraternity who were out there. You know, was it in and with with me and my part and my girlfriend. So, you know, it 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 didn't have to end up that way. But again, I'll, I I and I think we're all have some culpability, but like we were we were kids, even those frat members, like we were 19, 20 years old. The adults in that situation, I think, didn't give us a model of how to how to deal with that kind of, that kind of tension. Hey, tell that for those who might be watching who don't really know what you're talking about there as much, tell a little bit more about that story and what what you actually saw i was one of the editors for the paper my girlfriend was the art editor for the paper and i was writing lots of essays that were satirical critiques of the greek system satirical critiques of like neo-confederate investments and patriarchy anti-blackness all of this stuff but but it was it was experimental stuff but i was critiquing i was very uh, <laughs> upfront yeah. about my critiques of 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 the ka's and yeah. and fraternity culture in general and the school and and so like i'm we were going to work one morning and it was bid day and you know bid day the fraternity stay up all night drinking and doing all kind of stuff and then they receive their pledges we just happened to be walking out of the dorm to go to our car to go work we were working at the ton of fun i don't know if y'all know ton of fun it was like this old fake chuck e cheese back over there by north park and as we were walking to the car, like one or two of them were like, KSA, uh, write about this. And then they said, you know, and we're 19, like we're young and we're, and we're from Mississippi too. Like if you, you know, you don't have to disrespect us too much for us to want to come back at you, right? So they're like, write about this. And we turn around and then they start calling us niggas and start calling her a B word. And because they had already threatened me, I had a gun in my um, dorm room. And I, I, you know, I never used the gun, but the gun was there for protection because of some other stuff that had happened. Mm -hmm. And so I go back to the dorm. I decide whether or not to get the gun or not. My girlfriend picks up a bottle. I put the gun back in the drawer. I get a little t-ball back and we walk back out. And then they just, you know, they keep on assaulting us with words and blackface and Afro wigs and Confederate capes. And there were some deans out there who saw it all. And so we get into it. And long story short, they put me and they put my partner and my girlfriend on disciplinary probation saying we use racially discriminatory language. And then they put the two fraternities on some sort of like the, like probation, like they couldn't have parties for a while. You know, the individuals, I don't know if the individuals, I don't think the individuals got put on disciplinary probation. And once you get, once you get put on disciplinary probation, they can kick you out for anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, among that group of people, where some people, you know, like some people who ended up becoming, you know, <laughs> governors and all sorts of things. And and my critique of that is not so much like let's let's hold Tate Reeves accountable for what he did when he was 19 or 20, but let's allow voters and people to talk about what we did when we were 19 or 20 mm -hmm. and why. Mm -hmm. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like yeah. and why. And and that that that's always been my thing. Like let's talk about why we were out there, why they were out there in yeah. Afro wigs, why they were out there in blackface. Let's talk about why I needed, why I thought I needed to have a gun. Mm -hmm. And I just think like in the absence of those kind of conversations, we get what we get, you know, so. Well, I I, I hear you because if, you know, young people do stupid things. Right. I mean, we know this, but right. if you can't then as an adult have a conversation about that and why it was hurtful or why it was a mistake or whatever, or whatever the case might be, then they're, 
I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that. There's no way to learn a lesson from it. No way. It, I mean, I mean that, you know? it's impossible. Like that, you know, like this is the thing about, you know, the, the, the most terrifying thing about what Trump has done is that he is he he has doubled down on making people who don't want to revise or remember or reckon feel like revising, remembering, and reckoning are like antithetical to being American, right? Like, like right. you know, if you go back and you regret. Like that's not what American men do, but but that is exactly what we need to do if we want to not repeat the failures of the past. And the fact that we don't ask that of like our governors or like the people who we elect says everything not about them but about us. You know what I'm saying? My beef isn't with Tate. I think we all know who Tate Reeves is. We all know what Tate Reeves values. My beef is with the people who make Tate Reeves in charge mm -hmm. and don't necessitate the Tate Reeves like ask himself like hard questions. And that's right. not Tate Reeves' fault. Just like Trump, Tate Reeves is going to be who Tate Reeves is, who Tate Reeves has always been. But the question is, like, why would we put people like that in control of so much? Like, mm -hmm. that's that that's the terrifying. You know, I, I was I was raised by some of my grandma was like a fool going to be a fool. The question is, are you foolish enough to follow? And so, like, if you foolish enough to follow these fools, like, that's what we need to talk about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and the whole thing with Confederate heritage, Mike. I mean, you know, I've been like, I dig it out. All I have, I go look on the Confederate sites and find it somewhere every year because it's not even like they're proclaiming it proudly, you know? Right. <laughs> I mean, so right. you know there's a problem with it or you wouldn't right. be hiding it over That's there right. on some, some uh, you know, racist right. Facebook page. I mean, That's it's right. so ridiculous. That's right. You know, and, and, and for me, you know, coming at it as a white woman who grew up in Mississippi and, I'm real sick of all this bullshit. Right. It's like, you, you know, I, I, I see that. And it's like, you're just, first of all, they're just making all these assumptions about the white people of Mississippi too, are going right. to go along with them. And of course, a lot of them do, or at least they let them get away with it. Right. But you know, why can't, I don't know. I, I even lost my thought in the middle. I'm so mad about it, but it's like, why, why play us this way? I mean, why yeah. present the state, in such a way. And I get it. It's some sort of crazy power consolidation and all those things that they use it for, but it's just, it's astonishing. I mean, it just, you know, you're playing, and, I don't know, somebody else and, take it. I can't. And, even. And I'll, I'll just say one thing to that. <laughs> I'll just say one thing to that, Donna. And, 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 and I think those people who are new to Mississippi don't realize, like, if you look at that same time, we're talking about when, you know, basketball is like mm -hmm. jumping like 89 to 90, and actually a little bit before that, like, you know, William Winter is is there, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the 80s. Ray Mabus is there. I'm yeah. not saying that these are like great politicians, but these are like like demonstrably like left of center politicians compared to the politicians right. that we have now. And I think some people don't understand that there was a point when, for lots of reasons, the Democratic Party in Mississippi was a lot stronger, like mm -hmm. on question. Right. I don't think you have to do a deep dive into the politics to understand, like, what happens and what happens partially happens because of like a split in the Democratic Party that I think is a split around racial lines. Mm -hmm. And and then the Democratic Party loses everything. And, and we've mm -hmm. been losing everything ever since then. But like, let's not act like that time in Mississippi wasn't real. Like there was a mm -hmm. moment when like we as Mississippians were like, we want to pay teachers more. Yeah, right. Like we right. want we want like all of our fucking children to have like equal access to everything. And then it just shifts. That's and right. I just think it's important for us to like look at that. I, well, I agree with you. And I'm going to kick it back to Kimberly. That on the politics, it's like white Democrats in our state have 
you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to say every one of them, but you know, have gone after the same, tried to fight for those same people who want right. Confederate heritage money right. and those things. Right. I mean, I've been saying it for years and pissing off a lot of Democrats, but it's like you, you got to try something different. For one right. thing, you're, you're losing. So right. you, you don't do it as well as somebody else. Right. So, you know, it, you just, it's a leadership thing. You know, you just got to, it's, it, it's crazy. Now, I do want to say tour reform. Mm -hmm. which I reported a lot about mm -hmm. and it's, it's not talked about nearly enough, but tort reform was really a political ploy and it was played and we've reported this, but you know, it was played in a very racist way yep. about all the black people getting rich, yep. especially those people in Holmes County yep. getting rich off these lawsuits. And it was, it was stated. I mean, it was known then it's in Jerry Nash and Andy Taggart's book on Mississippi politics that uh, it was being used as a way to defund trial attorneys who were giving money to, to who were largely funding the Democratic campaigns. No question. So, I mean, you know, we can you know, call it what it is. Like, right. tort reform in Mississippi was partially an attempt to go at Isaac Byrd. Like, That's partially right. an right. attempt to go at Isaac Byrd. And, and like, Isaac Byrd is someone I know very well and someone yeah. I know I know intimately and someone who you know, you know, despite interpersonal things was attempting to do a lot of progressive things for Mississippi. True. And that tort reform stuff was attempting to take his legs out from under him, but also like literally like not grant some black people who were harmed shit that they deserve. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I just can't yeah. really, I, I know you want to jump up in. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. You take it. Well, we're going off. A I had lots of, I had, well, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm walking somewhere. But uh, so I have uh, my best friend, her husband, and several of my friends went to Millsaps, and they were probably a first round of students who were a response to the Ayers case, being afraid that they were going to be sued in a different right. way for a different right. reason. Uh, so they all went to Millsaps on an academic scholarship, and they had a friend down the hall who was a black man who was a member of KA. And I can remember. I because I didn't know what it was because I grew up. My, if you're not an AK on Delta, I really right, don't, right, I don't right, understand. Right, 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 right. And so we, I was sitting in their room, and I remember my friend's husband and his best friend were like calling this person's name. What are you gonna be the slave? Like I'm gonna be the gentleman. And he was the gentleman that opened the door. Oh, and he, they were like, no, "Sir, no, sir." And then um, every decade or so, someone tries to uh, introduce me to this same person. Because I guess we're so well spoken. Wow. And I was like, I know I, I wow. don't know who it is. Anyway, I wow. said all that to say. You know, you talked about men in America and this idea that they're not supposed to have regret, that they're not supposed yeah. to ask for forgiveness, that they're not supposed to talk about things that have happened to them and say, that I shouldn't have done that, but here's mm -hmm. why I did it. Mm -hmm. mm. And one of the things my sister and I were talking about the other night is there's a fragility about looking bad, making yeah. mistakes. Right. Whereas women will be like, I'm just going to have to, I may not be qualified exactly to do this thing, right. but I'm going to try to get this thing done. Right. You talk a lot about the women in your life and how important they have been. Will you say a little bit about the heavy lifting that black women in Mississippi mm. have done and continue to do and what they mean to community and how they kept the community together and created the community sometimes when there wasn't a community. Yeah. There's so many levels to that question. 
but but I want I want to jump in sort of like not at the not at the origin, but but like at 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 like why this isn't a problem in our state. You don't have to look long and hard to understand that, like particularly black women in this state have like held us. And when I say us, I'm talking about black men. I'm talking about black communities, and I'm talking about white folks too. Like have held that held Mississippi necessarily like together. Whether we're talking about Fannie Lou Hamer whatever, like, you know, whether we're talking about Mario Walker, we talk about even my mama, whether we're talking about those people who didn't have educations, who hold up those rural communities, who held up all of those churches. When I look out and I use my eyes and I use my artistic, you know, whatever to, to describe, I have to describe like that, that, you know, you can call it matrilineal, you can call it matriarchal, whatever. But the question is, why in a state that is so necessarily dependent on the leadership and love and care of black women, don't we see black women in positions of power politically mm-hmm. Ooh, in, in Jackson, <laughs> in Rankin County, in the Delta, in Northern Mississippi, you know what I'm saying? Like on a statewide level, like when we talk about the race line in Mississippi, if we're not also talking about the way gender inflects that race line, we're not talking about the race line. Like one of the problems with our state is that we have not decided to give black women an opportunity to run the state. But black women are sort of running the state behind mm-hmm. the scenes. So the question mm-hmm. is, what happens then if the state and the stakeholders in the state realize that black women who have been holding this shit together and being like the demonstrable fucking like 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 pantheon of the best of us, mm-hmm. like what happens if we decide we need to see them overrepresented on city councils? We need to see them overrepresented on anything that we can vote for because right now they're woefully underrepresented, damn near across the board. And Mississippi is losing. So let's try something different and see if we can start winning. That's how I feel about it. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I'm, I'm a Christian person. I go to church and I refi- I will not go to your church if you do not ordain women. I think that's the most yes. ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Why are we sitting up in here? And I always and people say, I don't know what to do. I said, well, if y'all got up and left one Sunday, <laughs> y- y'all will shut all that down because ain't going to be for five people in there. That's it. They'll ordain, they'll ordain everybody up in there. Listen, I've been the black. I I was raised on a black missionary Baptist church. Like grew up in missionary Baptist church. Like that black missionary Baptist church uh, dictates a lot of my sensibilities. And to this day, I'm still like, what the deacons do? Because I just see the deacons just that they just be over there in suits. Well, but like. My grandmama deaconess, but she was like on the usher board. She running fucking Sunday school. She making sure that the you know everybody is in one that the guest preachers pay, uh, making sure that everybody got a plate. You know, so and so is so and so is is allergic to peanut butter. You know, but so I, I can tell you what the deaconesses do, but I still don't know what the deacons do, and mm-hmm. and I feel like that is sort of what we see in our state. What are y'all? What are we men doing, fam? on these city councils, as mayors, as governors. And the question is, not enough. So if we were really about it, if we were really about it, not only would we support like black women candidates specifically, but we as black men would be like, as much as I want to occupy that that, that position of power, it ain't my time. Mm-hmm. It ain't right. That ain't for me. That's not ethically sound. And so that's, that's, a, that's a remedial sort of like step and it's like a representative step, which people often say is like suspect politically. And I agree, actually. But still, I would love to see Jackson and Mississippi be led by black women since those are the people who've held us down since I've been alive. You well, know, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Kimmer. Yeah, the Byram, I don't know what they called it. 
Alderman. 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 Yeah. Alderman. Lord, people. I guess five black women got elected. Wow. This week. Yeah. So go look that up. Now That's huge. Yeah. We're going to be doing a story on that. That's yeah. huge. Well, you know, one of the things I remember you writing was when you would see your mother as the only black woman political scientist that would be brought out during election season. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now I'm in, I'm in media. So of course that immediately spoke to me, but it's true for all women that we have very few women in political voices here, period. And, and certainly true for black women. And so I, I don't know what I, I guess what I'm thinking when I listen to y'all talk about that is that, you know, the media needs to do our job too. You know, we need, and we need to, mm -hmm. and as this, and our, our political, our parties, our strategists, you know, we need women prominent, all women, but certainly black women in more prominent roles talking about politics. I mean, how yes. often do we even get to hear that? That's a great in this point. State? I mean, anywhere, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. I was just really struck by that, you know, and I yeah. knew who your mother was, and I think we had interviewed her for several times, and I think we'd go find her because we needed at, right. at the Jackson Free Press. But it, it's representation, you know, more right. that would help a lot. It's not it, the only answer, but it would certainly help a lot. It would help a lot, and I'm a big fan of allowing people who have not, who've earned positions, but who haven't been given, given them opportunities to fail. Now, we understand that black women in positions of power, if they fail, they're going to be punished much more harshly than mm -hmm. a group of people. I don't think that should be true. And I think we should give, I think black women have earned the right to politically fail us because they politically like succeeded with a small mm -hmm. P in our homes and in our communities. And historically, like we know that's true. Do you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. we got a lot, to, we got a lot to deal with in, in our state and racism is one thing, but like patriarchy is a completely like, equally destructive force. I also think that there's something that we don't want to talk about. I don't want to talk about it because I'm I'm a black Mississippian, so I like secrets. You know, I right, like, right, like right. I like I, I know who <laughs> I know I like a secret. But nationally we have to ask ourselves why was our president and now our vice president black people they not less black, they're not descendants of slaves. And so there's some reckoning we don't want to do with particularly descendants of slaves. We look at Colin Powell, he's not a descendant of slaves. He's a Bahamian or either Jamaican immigrant. I mean, Condoleezza Rice is a descendant of slaves. But if you just start drilling down on yeah. some of that, yeah, what is, a, we have a, rec we don't want to do that reckoning. Yeah, like we we don't and we don't want to do it publicly, right? Because even when you say it, I'm, and, and I'll, I'll say anything, but you know, I'm I'm like well, oh, you were shit. like oh, are we gonna talk about that in public? Damn, do we want to? You know, but it's something that we need to sit in and deal with, right? Like, yes, it's it's undeniable that these particular political figures who are like like deeply loved in black communities are different than most of the black communities who love them, right? Like, have right. a different constitution, and and I want to talk about that different constitution critically. You know what I mean? Because I'm, because I'm, which means we have to do that hard conversation, which is to talk about like all the black folks in this nation are not just here, like didn't come the way our people came. Like our people were dragged over here and said, do your shit. Like some people were like, hey, like I want to come. Like that's a different experience. Right. But I think we need to sit in that and really talk about like the things we talk about when we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about privilege, we talk about anti-blackness, we talk about colorism. I think we kind of need to sit in that a bit more. But it is scary to talk about. Like, I'm scared that I just said what I said. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know why it's scary to talk about, but it's very scary to talk about. 
Yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, well, you remember, you remember when school days came out? And yep. we were all like, we talking about colorism outside yep. the house? Right. Oh, oh that's not That's that. right. I didn't, like, I was Meadowbrook in the movie theater in Jackson. I remember sitting there like, are we going, like, we don't talk about this in the streets. No. And you know, you We do not talk about colorism. At we all. We do not talk about light-skinned privilege. We don't talk about certain sororities being light-skinned, right. certain sororities being... Right. We don't talk about that. We talk about that at church and at our house. And now Spike Lee has put it on the film Ooh. for everyone to see. You know, my mama took me to that movie and it was, you know, there used to be a theater right down from Jackson State, like across from the bowling alley. That theater like behind, I don't remember what the name of it was, but I saw that movie, fam, and my mama and them walked out of there speechless. Like, we had never seen that private part of us made public, like, on a big old screen. And it was a lot of stuff. I mean, it was even, remember when um, there was that scene where he was, she was licking his, um, licking his brand. He licked, she licked his, she licked his curl first, and then she licked his brand. And I was like, as a young person, I mean, I, I must have been like 14 or something. I was just like, you know, first of all, with my mom, I'm like, well, wait a minute now. Like, I thought this was about school, you know? And, and then there was that scene, there was that scene where Samuel Jackson is like, you know, he's one of the people in the town, and he was like, y'all are different than us. Like, you, right, you know, right. y'all think y'all are so much better. And he was like, the, the line he said was, y'all are niggas just like us. Like, I just mm -hmm. remember it like it was yesterday. So, yeah, there was a lot in that film, for sure. Yeah, and so, but I think the, the thing that we all have to deal with that we don't want to deal with necessarily, and I'm not prepared to deal with it, so I'm just saying Okay, that. okay, okay. So, but those we got to have those conversations with our kids about those things, and yes. we don't want to have those conversations that is either. It, Kimberly, like that is, and I try to create books that encourage those conversations, mm -hmm. but you know, books don't do all of the work. You still need like engaged teachers, and really, you need engaged parents. But that's hard because we've been taught that those things should not be written about, should not be read, and definitely should not be talked about. So, well, like, go ahead. We come from a culture of secret keepers. You kept yes. yourself safe during slavery. That's you right. escaped by being, mm -hmm. you learned to read in secret. You escaped in secret. We are secret keepers. And so if you keep the secrets, then you keep your family safe. That's right. So this is a secret. We don't need to talk about that anywhere else. Right. That's it. That's it. That's it. Speaking oh, of uh, Ed Edmonton said it was Cinema West. That's what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. That's what it was. Cinema okay. West. Well, that's it. So speaking of secret keepers, no, I uh, I got to ask you about the University of Mississippi, because as you know, we, you know, Kimberly and I, without knowing that when we started the Mississippi Free Press, we were going to end up doing a whole lot of heavy duty reporting on, on the University of Mississippi, but that had to be done. And, you know, so you've just recently left there. Well, and I still, I still teach well, there. Okay, but you're, yeah. you're not going to be teaching there, right? I don't think I don't I don't think I'll be teaching there. Oh, okay. So I, yeah. I don't know the exact story yeah, of what's yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah. But just talk about because you know I read your essay that was that I think you wrote when you first got to the University of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I just want to hear what you have to say about your experiences there, and I don't know what what you learned or where it's you <sighs> yeah. know where the so, university is to you. Yeah, I, I'm gonna try to be brief because I I could I could talk about that for hours, but. You know, I, I got tenure up at Vassar College and I really needed and wanted to come back to Mississippi. They offered me the, the John Grisham Fellowship, which was mm -hmm. a year 
to teach one or two courses at the University of Mississippi, but also a year to finish my book. I came back to Mississippi because spiritually I needed to be closer to home, but also I needed to finish heavy. So I finished heavy yeah. at University of Mississippi. So I mm-hmm. want to say I'm I'm thankful for that space and that time. Mm-hmm. I met some amazing colleagues, like they and the students. Oh my goodness gracious! Like the students, they just blow my mind. Right, the students mm-hmm. are like different than students that I've met in other different other places. And you know, the University of Mississippi is. I think one of the things that draws some people is that, especially like the English, like it doesn't necessarily abide by rules. You know, it's sort of like <laughs> it's like Faulkner. You know, like you don't have, but but sometimes when you don't abide by rules the same vulnerable people get taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, I got tired of everywhere I went, it said University of Mississippi. And like my career has been like a commercial for the University of Mississippi the last four or five years. You know what I'm saying? I've sold hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of books everywhere those books go, it says University of Mississippi. And if my name is gonna be a commercial for your institution, well, your institution has to do right. Okay, so Mm -hmm. the institution is not gonna do right, right? All right, but then, on a smaller level, it's like within my own fiction part of the institution, those people, you don't have to do what I say, but we at least have to be ethical when it when it when it pertains to like students, mm-hmm. particularly students of color and vulnerable students. And when you when my colleagues sometimes decide like they're not gonna do like ethical shit around like students of color and vulnerable students. And that's when I have to be like, all right, well, I, I, I have options, so I probably don't need to be here anymore. That's a generous, that's as generous a take <laughs> I can give about the University of Mississippi. If you want to ask more specific questions, we can talk about it, but it's a place that pats itself on the back for realizing that it's coming in last. And I just, I just think sometimes we, we we need to not pat ourselves on the back for realizing 30 years too late that we should have done something. I think I think you do the work of mm-hmm. like talking about why it took us 30 years to remove a statue or 40 or 50 or 78 years as opposed to patting yourself on the back for doing something that other also neo-Confederate institutions did 10 or 15 years ago. That so, you know, I mean, it, it's way more complicated than that, but that's that's as generous as I can be. Well, it has a way of, you know, and maybe I'm being generous here too, but of looking like PR from the outside that, you know, where things can be wrapped up in neat packages, such as the Ed Meek affair or, you know, and then, and then all of these other things are out there. But I think what gets me about it, we know that history is there. We know that there are those influences. We know there are donors who want it to be the old way, but why do so many people gather around that still to help prop it up when it's discovered? You know, that's what I don't get. It's like, it's almost as if the institution itself seems to become more important than like you're talking about and which I was, you know, I'm still obsessed with the protection of young women having their pictures taken on the square or whatever the case might be. Listen, like I was born on a college campus, right? Like, I was born at Jackson State yeah. University. I was born literally there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got kicked out of Millsaps. I went to Jackson State. I went to Oberlin. I went to Indiana University. I immediately went to Vassar. Immediately after that, I go to Oberlin. I'm, I'm institutionalized. Like, I've been at these institutions my entire life. I have never in my life seen anything like what Ed Meek did, ever. I have never seen a donor somehow wow. take pictures of black girls out on the square, dressed like white girls out on the square, and their pictures being disseminated to somehow speak to like, this is how property values are plummeting. 
that is when I started to see what my institution, that institution where I worked really was, because that's an opportunity for everybody to step up. Everyone mm -hmm. to step that's up. Right. Every single person on that campus should have stepped up and said, hell no, never, ever, 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 ever again. But instead, it was treated like this secret. And Ed Meek was coddled. And what we didn't do is we didn't foreground like what was actually done to those black women who were just out there trying to have some fun on a fucking Saturday night. I've never seen it. And then after that, you know, the Ole Miss students go and they shoot up the Emmett Till sign and pose. And then we find mm -hmm. out that they're like keeping that below the surface. So all I'm saying is if Ole Miss wants to be what it claims to be, which is among other things, courageous, at some point, the leadership and or the faculty and or the students and or Oxford have to stand up and be like, fucking be courageous. Don't right. just or admit that you a coward. You can't have it both ways. And what I see is cowardice pushed to the brink and then it has to act. And that act is supposed to be labeled as courageous. But fam, mm -hmm. you didn't act until you had to act. That's what a coward does. You, it's OK to be a cowardly institution, but hold it. Claim that. Don't be a fucking coward and then claim that you a goddamn like like you know out there like chivalrously like no that's cowardly shit. So like that's where I am and I know all institutions deal in cowardly shit, but there's a pretentious particularity to the cowardly shit I see at the University of Mississippi and their opportunities. Every cowardly move we make as individuals and institution, that's an opportunity for us to teach ourselves and teach our students. And I think sometimes we don't step up to that. And I'm just saying, when we don't step up, we need to call ourselves what we are, cowards. I'm a coward most of the time. That institution is a coward as well, but it wants to act as if it's a hero. Nah, mm. so it can't do that no more with my name attached to it. Mm. That's all. Well, I hear you. I feel you. And then on top of everything else, it's like once they finally do do something to Meek and take his name off of it, and then we figure out there's all this other stuff that that they that anyway you know exactly what i'm talking about to our email series and it's just this cycle that keeps going and, you know one of the things i uh in some of the follow-up stories to the um emails uh series we we talked to some black faculty and black students student leaders and you know i'll be honest and it's not just because i went to mississippi state which has got its own problems right and I'm not sugarcoating that but so it's not that at all, even though they'll say it. But but I've always struggled with this idea of black students choosing to go to Ole Miss. Like, why would you? I mean, I've you know, I mean, you but just I, think that. But these students, that's what I'm saying. These students made it. I loved them because they really made it clear that, well, for one thing, we're not going to change Mississippi if we don't change its flagship university. Right, you know, right. and they really made me see that. And, 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 and I want to say thank you for bringing that up because I was one of those people who grew up in, grew up in Jackson and none of my people ever went to me. Oh, I mean, like it was it was never even a possibility that any mm -hmm. of the folks that I grew up with and love would go to the University of Mississippi. So when I get there, there is a part of me that's like even, you know, because I'm there first year as a fellowship. I'm like, man, who would you know what kind of black students would go? And then you meet and they're like black students who want the opportunity to learn. Like, you know what I'm saying? And like, they believe that at this institution, mm -hmm. like they will be pushed and they will mm -hmm. learn. And you know what? This is where I think the paradox comes in. 
so many black students that I've met at that institution are not just like great students, but like some of the greatest students that I will ever encounter. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because of the education they got at the University of Mississippi. I don't think we have to act like the education that a lot of these mm -hmm. students are getting is so bad simply because the institution sometimes chooses to be cowardly. It is a cowardly institution. Mm -hmm. And it also has done, I think, a great job at educating and being educated by like some of the best and brightest black students and all students from Mississippi and from the deep south. But I just think like that's I'm glad that that you that you bring that up. Like let us let's let's not play ourselves. Those black students at the University of Mississippi are doing it. And sometimes mm -hmm. they're doing it in spite of institutional support and sometimes they're doing it because of institutional support, but they are doing it family like, mm -hmm. and in a way that I was shocked to see. And if you think any of that progressive stuff quote unquote that's happening at the University of Mississippi is happening because people just decided to do right, you're just wrong. Almost all of that shit is happening because usually black students and multiracial groups of students as well, but led by black students are pushing that stuff in addition to trying to get their work done. That is incredible, but it's also something we shouldn't ask of our young people. Wow. And that's the exact reaction. I mean, they, they took me to school, you know, mm -hmm. with their comments in a way that I really appreciated and felt like I needed, you know, oh, no. and I came no. out of that feeling very, very impressed, you know, at, at their courage in some ways. I yes, mean, you indeed. know, it, that's part of it is courage, but also they're brilliant. You're right. They and are. They're, they're they, choosing to go there. Uh, I think one of my, my favorite thing coming out of that whole series was getting to know a lot of these students yeah, who were addressing, yeah. you know, that who were having real complicated, honest conversations about these things and why they were there. And what they, they are, they are the best of us. Like the question is like, do we give them, uh, context to be their best selves and, and often we do but often we do not but they those students are like the best of the as as all I think all of our students in, in Mississippi but but in, in a way that I, I was shocked by you know I, I thought that I, if you chose to go to Ole Miss as a black student you weren't gonna have any political consciousness you weren't wanna mm -hmm. you wanna like try to act like you weren't black and all that that's, that's <laughs> the complete opposite of what I found um which was which was which is shocking and says a lot about the lack of imagination that I had well, I can say this state grad has a real soft spot spot for University of Mississippi at this point after going through all of wow. this and, and meeting them. Seriously, not for everybody at the University of Mississippi. Right, Don't right, get me right, wrong. Right, right, right. But but I really I care more about that university than I ever thought possible because of all the amazing people I've I've met through all this work. So I mean, and thank you for and thank y'all for doing that that work. You know, I know some people see it as you know y'all just trying to like cause trouble or whatever, but. <laughs> But 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 you know like the the secrecy the secrecy that Kimberly's talking about if it harms the most vulnerable like it's it especially needs to be uncovered you know mm -hmm. what I mean we we don't need to harm people who the state has already decided that it is going to perpetually harm and when we see secrets doing that work we got to uncover the secrets so thank that's you. right and thank you for saying that and I've told that to many people we just had no choice once we knew we had to do it and you know and that's for the very reasons that you're talking about. Thank you so much, Kiese. This was Thank so you, much Donna. fun. Thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate this. Man, and, and yes, uh, this was just wonderful. And uh, and so good luck out there, Kiese. We didn't really talk about this wonderful book, 
long division that I'm reading well, right now. Good. But, but y'all pick it up. This is a wonderful novel. If you haven't read it so far, it's it's kind of a romp in a way. It's yeah. It's really great. A romp with history. That's so, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so please pick up the book. Read read all his books if you haven't. They're all every word in them is just amazing. MFP Live is a production of the Mississippi Free Press. Reader supported solutions journalism for the Magnolia State. You'll find it at mfp.ms. MFP live streams most Thursdays on the MFP's Facebook and YouTube pages where you can listen live and participate in the show by commenting. The MFP live podcast is an edited version of the live show. The hosts of MFP live are MFP co-founders Donna Ladd and Kimberly Griffin. This episode of MFP live was produced by Todd Stauffer. The podcast was produced by Courtney Munke and it's available on popular listening apps and platforms. Learn more at mfp.ms slash live.